Okay, imagine this, that you've been in your kitchen for a while now and you have concocted a giant pot of deliciousness. Maybe beef stew. I love homemade beef stew, okay? So for our purposes, let's just assume you've just made this great pot of beef stew. Fresh ingredients, smells awesome. It's gonna be delicious. And then somebody walks into your kitchen and says, man, does that smell good. That's gonna taste good. But I've got a few ideas on how to make it even better. And with that said, they squirt some motor oil into the pot. And they'll say, but wait, I have some more ideas to make this even better. And they squirt some dish soap into your pot. And they say, but wait, a dash of something else is gonna top it off and make it perfect. And they bend down and grab your dog's water dish and dump the dog's water dish into your pot and says, there, now we have what we need. Would you be appreciative or unappreciative? What do you think? That's the situation happening in the church in Colossae. One person, most Bible scholars believe it was one person, one individual who had infiltrated the church and had started teaching things that weren't Christian. That they had the unadulterated, life-changing gospel of Christ that was the foundation of this church. And then a false teacher came in and said, hey, Jesus, he's cool, good guy, good teachings, like what you're doing, smells good, probably tastes good, but I have ideas on how we can make it better. And so this person began to introduce some Jewish mysticism and some pagan folklore, and then just a dash of Greek philosophy and said, voila, now you got a church. And Paul's response was, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was perfect. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. You don't mix things like that with Christian teaching. The heresy is called syncretism. And syncretism is where you take divergent views and philosophies, things that don't go together and put them together. That was the issue. And that's what prompted Paul to write this letter to the Colossae church saying, don't let it happen. Don't mix those things with the gospel. And what he does in this letter, he presents Jesus as being supreme. That Jesus Christ was God indwelling a human body, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, and all you need is Jesus. That if you have Jesus, you have all you need to thrive, and you don't need any other ingredients. That's all you need. That was the whole point of this book. Paul, in writing this letter, if you know anything about Paul, you know that Paul has a reputation, that Paul has a reputation for being a type A personality, very, very driven, very, very hardworking, kind of hard-nosed, the kind of guy where like, if you get in his way, he'll knock you over that he's got his goals, he's got the things he wants to accomplish, and you better keep up or he's gonna knock you over. Now, a lot of that reputation that Paul has is deserved. I think by and large, he was that kind of leader, but he had a soft side as well. He was a little bit more complicated than that. And what you're gonna see is that Paul also deeply cared about people, that he indeed had the loving 
heart of a shepherd. That even though he was a very strong, capable leader, he believed in the power of team. And he understood that he could not accomplish God's purposes by himself, that he needed people around him that were going to be moving in the same direction. And so in the first century, it it was customary that if you were to write a letter to people, you would always close the letter with greetings, that you would say, hey, so-and-so says hi, so-and-so says howdy, hey, how's so-and-so doing? Tell them that I said hi. And, And that's how you'd always end a letter is by naming specific names. And Paul carries on that custom in his New Testament letters. In fact, if you add up all the names in the New Testament that Paul mentions by name, it's around 85, 90 names. People he specifically calls out that he specifies their contributions to the work of the ministry. And that's what he does as he closes out Colossians. And so he gives us a glimpse of what the early church was like. He gives us a glimpse of the relationships and the networks and and the way as a team they move the gospel forward. And specifically, what we're going to see is he mentions here at the close of Colossians 11 different names. And we're going to do a quick survey of those 11 names and see what we can learn about the church and ultimately maybe about ministry and about ourselves. So let's jump in, okay? We're gonna go through these names relatively quickly, but I think it's really pretty interesting stuff, pretty fascinating stuff. So let's begin with verse seven and eight. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and a faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I've labeled Tychicus the faithful messenger. I think that describes Tychicus pretty well. He was Paul's faithful messenger. He was a member of Paul's ministry team on his third missionary journey. If you read the book of Acts, as the church was first starting, as the gospel was first spreading, Paul was a guy, he was an evangelist, he was a missionary, he was a church planter, and so he would travel to places in the world where the gospel had never been preached before, see people come to faith in Christ and establish a church. And and, and so he, in the Acts records three major trips he took, and we, we normally call them his first, second, and third missionary journey. Well, Tychicus was a part of his ministry team on his third missionary journey. That's where they got to know each other. And now his role is he's delivering this letter to the Colossian church. He's the messenger who's delivering it. And at the same time, he was also delivering the letter to the church in Ephesus, the book we call Ephesians, and also the book, the New Testament book Philemon. And so think about this. In his satchel, he had the original manuscripts to the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, and Philemon. Isn't that crazy? What if he had gotten mugged or misplaced it or something like that? Now, obviously, he had no idea what he was carrying, but imagine that. The role he had in delivering these letters that became sacred scripture, they got anointed as sacred scripture to the church. He was the deliverer for these and also the guy that Paul entrusted with the details of what's going on in his life. He said, I'm not going to include them all in the letter, but when I get there, Tychicus is going to tell you how I'm doing. He'll give you details on what's going on and some of my specific prayer requests. But what's clear is that Paul's words for Tychicus are very warm and they're very appreciative 
for the role he played, okay? So Tychicus, the faithful messenger. Let's go on. Verse 9. I'm also sending Onesimus. Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. And so Onesimus was a hometown boy. He was from Colossae. Most of the listeners to this letter being read would know this guy because he's from their hometown, Onesimus. And I would label Onesimus the useful fugitive. Useful fugitive. The reason why is because Onesimus was a slave. He was a slave in the city of Colossae. And what we know is this, that he had probably stolen something from the household in which he lived in which he served. He stole something and then took off, ran away out of fear. And in order to get lost and not be found, he moved to Rome, the biggest city metropolitan area you can imagine, to get lost and not get caught after stealing and and running away as a slave. But it's funny how God is sovereign. And you know what ends up happening? This runaway slave goes to the big city of Rome and somehow crosses path with who? The Apostle Paul. They develop a relationship, a friendship. He's exposed to the gospel. He crosses the line of faith and becomes a friend and a co-worker of the Apostle Paul to the point where eventually Paul writes a letter to Onesimus's master, Philemon. And in the letter to Philemon, he says, Philemon, you're not going to guess in a million years who I ran into. <laughs> He's a brother in Christ now. You need to accept him. You need to forgive him. You need to worship alongside of him without holding a grudge or or, or, or any kind of retribution. Christ had changed their relationship and changed their life. That's the Onesimus who's with Tychicus delivering these letters. Let's go on. Verse 10. Aristarchus who is in prison with me, sends you his greetings. And so does Mark, Barnabas's cousin. As you were instructed before, make Mark welcome if he comes your way. Three names mentioned in this verse. First of all, Aristarchus. Aristarchus, I would label brave friend. Brave friend. I want to suggest to you that him and the apostle Paul bonded because they had shared a lot of foxholes together. They had gone through some serious danger, some serious crises together. If you read the book of Acts, we know this, that Aristarchus was with Paul when Paul caused a riot in the city of Ephesus. His preaching caused absolute pandemonium, a very violent riot to where Paul and his companions, including Aristarchus, were almost killed by the crowds but they had survived by the grace of God together. Then later in Acts chapter 27, we know that as Paul was sailing to Rome and they were shipwrecked and they were adrift on the sea for days before they were rescued, Aristarchus was one of the guys in the water with him, treading water, hanging on, trying not to drown. They had been through those kind of things together. So I imagine that Paul viewed Aristarchus as his brave friend, someone that he had shared a foxhole with more than once. Now, another name mentioned here is Mark. And Mark is the recovered deserter. I've labeled Mark the recovered deserter. Mark was also known as John Mark. 
And what we know about him is this, that on Paul's first missionary journey, and we read about it in Acts chapter 13, on Paul's first missionary journey, Mark abandoned ship. He deserted the team. That in the middle of their trip, he turned around and went home. We don't know why. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he became frightened as persecution began to increase. Don't know. All we know is in the middle of their mission strip, he just went home. Eventually, he made a comeback. Eventually, he re-earned Paul's trust. And I think that's why Paul says, hey, make Mark feel welcome when he shows up. Because they might have picked up news that he was a deserter, that he had disappointed Paul, and said, hey, We've made up, we've forgiven, we have an understanding now. So when he shows up, don't make him feel weird, okay? Don't ostracize him because you heard about him abandoning our mission strip. You make him feel welcome when he shows up. John Mark was his name. Ended up authoring the second book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. Lastly, in this verse, there's a guy mentioned, Mark's cousin, Barnabas. And Barnabas, I would label former partner. As far as the Apostle Paul is considered, I would label him former partner. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas were ministry leaders and they were partners on the first missionary journey. They co-led that first evangelistic campaign to establish churches, okay? Then during that trip, Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, deserted them. You following me? Following the drama? Okay, so here's what happened. When they began planning the second missionary journey, Barnabas was like, hey, John Mark wants to sign up for the trip again. He's already turned in his deposit, so can, can he like come with too, right? And Paul said, you gotta be kidding me. That little rascal abandoned us first time. I'm not taking him again. Fool me once, it's your fault. Fool me twice, it's mine. I'm not bringing him. And Barnabas was like, you gotta be kidding me. He made one mistake, give me a break. And besides, he's my cousin, you gotta let him go with. And they went back and forth. And the book of Acts actually tells us that Barnabas and Apostle Paul went separate ways. They couldn't agree on this. And Paul said, it's not happening. I'm not taking that dude. And Barnabas was like, if you don't take him, I'm not going with you. And they formed their own mission trips and went their own way. And Barnabas took his cousin and Paul took other people. I love the way the New Testament is so real that it gives us truth, it gives us details even when it's not all that flattering. You know what I mean? To me, it's proof that God's word is an accurate record because even when relational like ickiness happens, it doesn't try hiding it or whitewashing it. And so these two men who were leaders and respected each other had to part ways because they couldn't agree on this. And so Barnabas was a former partner. We assume that they eventually made up, that they came to some kind of understanding, but no longer worked shoulder to shoulder in ministry. Okay, going on to verse 11. It says, Jesus, the one we call justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my coworkers. They are working with me here for the kingdom of God and what a comfort they have been. Jesus, justice, I would label the unknown helper. The unknown helper because all we know about him is what we read here. He was Jewish, a Jewish convert. He was a comfort to Paul and he helped Paul. That's all we know. 
He had two names. He had a Jewish name, which was Jesus or Joshua, a very common name. And then he had a Roman name, which was Justice, kind of like John Mark. John was the Hebrew name and the Roman name was Mark. John Mark, Jesus Justice. All we know is that he brought Paul comfort. The church has always been full of unsung heroes, people who aren't well known, people who are behind the scenes, but they were faithful and they did what God called them to do. And Justice, Jesus, is one of those guys. We know hardly anything, but we know he was a good dude and Paul appreciated him. All right, let's go on. Verse 12 and 13. It says, Epaphras, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. I had the label Epaphras, prayer warrior, prayer warrior. Paul said he works so hard. This guy works so hard. And I'll tell you what he's really good at is praying. He prays for you guys constantly. He's earnest in his prayers for your spiritual development. And now what we know about Epaphras is this. He was the founder of the church of Colossae. The Colossian church, he founded it. That, that Epaphras was saved under Paul's ministry in Ephesus came to know Christ, his life was changed, went back to his hometown of Colossae and began sharing his faith. And his friends and family started crossing the line of faith, coming to trust in Christ. They formed a church, formed a Bible study, started getting together once a week for worship, and it was the church. So we know Epaphras was an evangelist. He knew how to share his faith. We know he was a leader. He organized the church. And so Colossae, and so Epaphras was like the man. So everybody knew him. Everybody knew his name here. And Paul said, man, I love this guy. He works so hard, but I'll tell you what he's the best at is praying. He gets at it when it comes to prayer. And you need to know, I hear him praying for you guys all the time, all the time. Okay, verse 14, we're making our way through here. We're going to get through this together, okay? Check it out, verse 14. Two other names mentioned. Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings and so does Demas. Two guys. First of all, Luke. Luke, I've labeled the attending physician. The attending physician. I want to suggest to you, if we had to speculate on who Paul's BFF was, it's Luke. I think Luke was Paul's closest friend, his most faithful, loyal friend. Luke was a doctor, a physician by trade, and so we know he was very well-educated, very sharp, intelligent guy. He was very well-esteemed in his community. And he was one of Paul's ministry partners. He accompanied Paul on a number of his ministry trips. And specifically, for two years, Paul was in jail in Caesarea. Luke was with him the entire two years. For two years, a separate imprisonment, he was a prisoner in Rome for two years. Both of those two-year imprisonment, Luke was with him the entire time to keep up his morale. I want to suggest to keep up his health, that he monitored Paul, that he brought him medicines when he needed it, that he's probably an advocate for him to be treated as well as possible by his jailers. But during that time, Luke didn't go anywhere. He stayed with his buddy, Paul, 
and took care of him the best that he could. I think Luke was an incredible guy. Luke also authored the Gospel of Luke, and he was the author of the book of Acts. Little trivia fact. Most people assume Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And what's true is he did write most of the books, right? Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. He wrote most of the books of the New Testament. But if you want to count words, if you want to actually measure who wrote most of the New Testament, it's actually Luke. He wrote a very long Gospel of Luke. He wrote a very long book of Acts. And so actually he wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did. I think that's pretty funny. I've got a weird brain, but I've got to envision they talk trash to each other about who was going to write most of the New Testament, you know? Well, Luke 1, he beat out his buddy Paul and said, nope, sorry, Duke, I'm first, okay? I don't know, do you think they talked trash first century? Of course they did, right? People have always talked trash. That's as old as the Garden of Eden, okay? I'm, I'm convinced of that. Okay, Luke's mentioned, and then he says, Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. Demas. I think he's the fading follower. That if we had to summarize him in two words, he was the fading follower. He's mentioned here in two other places in the New Testament. And the only thing we know about him is found in 2 Timothy 4.10. All he's mentioned here is, hey, Demas says hi too. But in Paul's last writing, shortly before he died, the last book he wrote was 2 Timothy, and shortly before he died in 2 Timothy, he mentions Demas, the same Demas, by name, and this is what he says. Demas has deserted me. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone on to Thessalonica. It's sad. <laughs> it's a sad ending. The fact that the only thing we know about Demas is that at one time he was a faithful follower, at one time he was a partner of Paul, but at the very end of Paul's life, perhaps at a time where Paul needed him the most, Demas faded away. That the things of this world were just too tempting for him, he lost his focus, he left the faith, he moved on. It happens. Demas, the fading follower. Verse 15 says, please give my greetings to our brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Who was Nympha? I would say she was the visionary hostess. The visionary hostess. Now, I'll tell you, there's a little bit of controversy here that in the very earliest manuscripts of this letter, very ancient early manuscripts of this letter, some of them say, Nympha, and some of them say Nymphus. Nympha is the female version. Nymphus is the male version. So there's some controversy. Is this a man or a woman? We're not 100% sure, okay? Really doesn't matter a whole lot, but because just one letter makes the difference on, on uh, whether it's a male or female name. But bottom line is this woman, this hostess, hosted the church in her home. In early Christianity, they didn't have church buildings, right? They didn't have church buildings. That churches, groups of people gathering together, met in people's homes. 
And typically it was the wealthier people who would host this simply because they had bigger homes. They could accommodate more people. And there's actually archeological finds in ancient New Testament cities that show that they, they made alterations to their homes to accommodate larger crowds because their church met there. But you see, a hostess had to be generous, opening up their home like that, but they also had to have a vision for the gospel and a vision for ministry because technically under Roman occupation, it was illegal to do that. Christianity was an illegal religion. It was an illegitimate religion. And if you hosted something like that in your home, you risked your home being confiscated. You risked being blackballed by the local authorities and people not doing business with you however you earned your living. And so for someone to take the risk of opening up their home to host a church, they had to have been a visionary for how important the gospel was. And they had to be willing to take that kind of risk. And Nympha was a woman who opened her home out of generosity and had the vision to provide a place for her brothers and sisters in Christ to meet. All right, we're down to the last name of the 11. Let's go. Verse 16 and 17. It says, after you have read this letter, pass it on to the church at Laodicea so they can read it too. And you should read the letter I wrote to them. And say to Archippus, say to Archippus, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Archippus, last label here, I would label him the faltering coworker. The faltering coworker co-worker based upon the message Paul gave to him. Because he says, be sure to tell Archippus, be sure to tell him to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Now, here's what we don't know. Was Paul calling him out like he was slacking, like he was getting distracted, like he was being irresponsible? And so tell that guy, be sure to carry out the ministry the Lord gave you. Was he calling him out or was he encouraging him because he was getting discouraged? Maybe he was exhausted. Maybe he was getting discouraged and, you know, he was losing heart. And so from a loving shepherd, Paul's tone was, hey man, tell him, keep carrying on. Carry out the ministry God's given you. We don't really know the tone, but obviously this was a person who was faltering. We don't know why, but they were faltering. And Paul called him out and said, hey, encourage that guy. Help that guy. Let him see that he needs to follow through on what he's supposed to do. It's really a reminder to us that when God gives us a task, we need to be diligent. That we can't get distracted. We can't get discouraged so easy. We, when God gives us something, we need to be faithful. We need to follow through. And we, we need to get her done. Okay? All right. And now we come to the last verse in the book. Chapter 4, verse 18. This is how he closes his letter to the Colossian church. He says, here is my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul, remember my chains. May God's grace be with you. I like the way he ends this letter. I think this is kind of cool. He takes the stylus or takes the pen out of Timothy's hand. Timothy had been a scribe. Paul had been uh, uh, reciting this. And, and Timothy had been writing it all down. But right here at the end, Paul takes the pen out of his hand and say, okay, I'm going to put my own handwriting here, at least for a sentence. And says, yep, it's me. Here's my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. I like that he did that. Why was he using Timothy as a scribe? Well, Paul might have been one of those guys where he did his thinking better if he was pacing back and forth. 
Okay, so he's in his little jail cell pacing back and forth, and Timothy's sitting there just kind of recording whatever it is he's saying. It could have been that. Some Bible scholars speculate that at this point, Paul's eyesight had become so bad that he could no longer write legibly. And so because he couldn't see, Timothy had to be his scribe. We don't know. Don't think it really matters. But it's an interesting little personal touch that he, for one sentence, uses his own handwriting and signs his name personally. I like that. He says, remember my chains. He reminds them that his circumstances are difficult, that the reason why he's not there in person delivering this letter in person is he can't. He's in jail because of the gospel. And then he closes with the blessing. He says, may God's grace be with you. What a blessing to give to other people, that God would bless them, that God would give them undeserved blessing. It's the blessing you and I need to give to each other and the blessing we need to be willing to uh, receive from others as well. Okay, so real quick, four vital lessons. When you think about all these people that are mentioned and all the relational dynamics and all the networks and all the paths that were crossed with all these different people, let me give you four vital lessons for us, okay? The first is this, the church is people. The church is people. We use the word church in a lot of different ways. We use the church to describe this building. We say, oh man, I forgot my jacket. I got to go back to the church and get it. Or we say, hey, I drove by the church today. We mean the building, right? And sometimes we say, oh man, church was awesome today. Or I got so much out of church. We're talking about the worship service. We're talking about now, right? We call that church. But when you use the word church biblically, like the New Testament uses it, it means people a called out assembly. Those who are followers of Christ who gather together in a specific location to serve him. Folks, the church is people. The brothers and sisters in Christ that are sitting around you together collectively, we make up the church. Make no mistake, the church is people, okay? Secondly, relationships are vital to effective ministry. Relationships are vital to effective ministry. You need people to do the work of God. We've got to love each other. We've got to get to know each other. We need to partner with each other. We need to make allowances for one another. And we need to develop relationships in order to do God's will here on earth. Third lesson is this. We need to recognize contributions and be generous with our words. Paul noticed who was doing what. You need to do the same. Have you ever thanked the person who's watching your kid in the children's ministry area right now? Have you ever looked them in the eye or given them a hug and say, thanks for missing church so you could take care of my kid? Have you ever noticed the smiling face greeting you as you come in the door? Have you ever thanked them for doing that or the person at the welcome center? Have you ever, after the service, gone up to the guitar player and say, man, I can play guitar in a million years, but I'm glad that you do. Thanks a lot for using your talents for God. Do you ever recognize the contributions around you and are generous with your words towards others? I hope that's a habit that you can develop like Paul did. And then fourthly, many different roles, many different roles, all are needed, one team. Some people are in the spotlight, ta-da! Some people are behind the scenes. Some people are extroverts, some are introverts. Some people have the gift of of, uh, task-oriented kind of stuff. Some people have the gift of people-oriented kind of stuff. We're all different. We're all different parts of the body, but we're all vital, we're all important, and we've got to function as a team. Here's how I want to conclude. I want to ask you this question. 
Here's how I want to conclude. If Paul wrote a letter to ACC, and how cool would that be? If Paul wrote a letter to ACC, three questions I want to ask you. First of all, would you be mentioned? Would you merit your name coming to his mind as he thought about our church? Do you think maybe you might be mentioned? Second question is, what would he say? If you are mentioned, hopefully it's not, yeah, and tell so-and-so to get off their butt and get busy working, okay? Hopefully it wouldn't be something like that. Hopefully he'd say, hey, and thank so-and-so for doing something positive, doing something productive, doing something good, something that's a blessing to others. If you were mentioned, what would he say about you? Would he be calling you out? Would he be commending you? And then the most important question, I think, is what would you want him to say? If you were to leave a legacy at ACC by being mentioned by the Apostle Paul in a letter to us, what in your wildest dreams would you like him to say about you? And then guess what? Live that life. (laughs) Live that life. However you want to be remembered, the legacy you want to leave at this church, live your life in that way. Volunteer in that way. Reach out in that way. Invest in relationships in that way. You're in control of that. You can serve Christ as he leads you. It's just the decision you make to commit yourself to it. I pray that every one of us in this room would either get into the game, would get back into the game, or would up our game, that we would use our relationships and our people power to make a difference for the sake of the gospel. Amen.